Hey, Summit family, Summit friends, welcome to the final night in our series through the book of Ruth. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, I'm a little bit torn tonight because um, I have enjoyed the story of Ruth so much and I've learned so much through it. Um, but I'm actually really excited that I get to be the one to put a bow on it, like Kina said, because this story has a really, really cool ending, as we're going to see. So I'm excited about that part of it. What we're going to see tonight um, is we're going to see the way that all of these seemingly disconnected, somewhat ordinary events of Ruth's life up until this point all kind of culminate in something really beautiful, something really, really extraordinary. And I think this is really relevant for us, especially um, our generation and just in the context that we live, uh, because ordinary makes us kind of uncomfortable. I think if we're really honest with ourselves and we, we think about that, like none of us aspire to be ordinary. Like, we're all aspiring for something, right? We want to be really good at our jobs. We probably want to be at the top of our field. Some of us aspire to maybe write a bestseller, um, or whatever it is. Like, we all have big aspirations for our life, and none of those aspirations include being ordinary, right? Um, so I think just as a generation, we feel a lot of pressure to um, make something of our lives, um, to not waste it, to leave our mark, to make an impact, um, to build a legacy, um, but I think that we don't always know where to look um, to figure out how to do that. I think that if we look around us, our culture tells us that uh, if we you know, have a diversified portfolio, if we choose the right investment accounts, um, if we're successful enough, if we're good-looking enough, if we're um, wise enough, uh, whatever it is, like if we do all the right things to get all of our ducks in a row after we're gone, there'll be something left for generations to come. And I don't think there's anything wrong with any of those things. Um, I think it's wise to be good stewards of our money. I think that's biblical. Um, I think it's good to be thinking about the future. Um, but I think what this story offers is something that none of those other sources do. And so what we're going to see tonight is what God uses to build legacies. Because if we're, if we're honest, like, we don't really do anything. Like, God uses us. Um, we just get to be a part of it. And so we're going we're gonna to see that tonight. And Andy kind of touched on this a few weeks ago when he was talking about uh, the pressure we feel to live an Instagram-worthy life. You guys remember that? I thought that was really ingenious of him because, like, that clicked, right? I was like, I feel that. And I know you guys feel that, too. Like, in Denver, um, like, there's always someone cooler than you. There's always someone that's doing something cooler than you. Um, or they're better at making their lives look cooler than your life, right? Uh, it's, it's an art to put the right pictures with the right filters at the right time so that the most people see it. Like, I know this. And, like, sometimes, like, you look at your Instagram feed, and you're like, I don't want to post anything, because, like, my weekend was not that epic. Like, I don't have that kind of time. I don't have that kind of money. I have responsibilities. I don't know how these people do this. And um, so we feel that. And I think, um, here's what I think. I think that we're so obsessed with living extraordinary lives that sometimes we miss the joy of the ordinary. Okay, I'm going to say that again. I think sometimes we're so obsessed with living extraordinary lives that we miss the joy of the ordinary. And I think if we're really honest, like, ordinary is our reality. Like, for most of us, our lives are pretty ordinary. Ordinary jobs, ordinary people doing ordinary things every day. But tonight, we're going to see God do something really cool with the ordinary. So let's just think back a little bit on the, what we know of this story of Ruth so far. Um, first, we saw her leave her hometown, go to a new city, um, then we saw she needed a place to live, so she moved in with her mother-in-law. Um, then she needed to get a job, so she found a job working in the fields. Then she met this nice man named Boaz, right? And so that brings us to where we are tonight in this final scene. 
And if you think about all those different events in, in Ruth's life, um, they're pretty ordinary. Like most of you have done each of those things probably several times. Maybe not met the man part, but like you've all moved to a new city. You've all found a new job. You found a place to live. You've probably done that several times since you've been in Denver. So that, those are all pretty ordinary things that has brought us into the, to this final scene. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and read verse 13 together. Go ahead and look down. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So here it is. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. For the past three months, we've been looking at this story of Ruth, and you know, th- if, if you think back, like this story started pretty tragic. It started with death, and now it's a complete reversal, right? We have a wedding, and we have a birth. It started with death, ended in birth. Um, so this whole time, the author's kind of been building suspense and kind of leading us along, and we've been waiting for a moment like this for things to finally start going Ruth and Naomi's way for there to be some good news. And we had a little bit last week, right, when uh, Boaz was doing the business contract, and um, he basically secured the rights to, to marry Ruth. And uh, now we finally see the wedding. And then not only that, but we see a birth right on top of it, so two and one, right? But here's something that's really interesting about this verse, is you would think that after building the suspense throughout this whole story, the past several chapters, for us the past three months of studying this story, that he would spend a little bit more time on the wedding and the birth, right? Like, think about the last scene. The last scene was a business deal, and he gave us a whole chapter But now a wedding and a birth, he can give us, I think it's 26 words, at least in English. It's 26 words. That's all we get to describe both a wedding and a birth. That's how I know this is a dude writing, okay? (laughs) There's a little bit of debate, not much, a little bit over whether it was a male author or a female. Most definitely a dude. Um, But I want to park in verse 13 for a little bit. Um, obviously, the author has something more important that he's trying to communicate. That's why he can't give us the details of a wedding and a birth. Um, but before we get to that, I, wanna, I just want to stay in verse 13, specifically on that phrase, the Lord gave her conception, those five words there. There's a lot wrapped up into those five words. Um, first of all, like that's the only time in the entire Old Testament that that phrase is used to talk about the birth of a child. I don't know, if you've been reading on any sort of a Bible reading plan this year, you've gone through the whole Old Testament, you know there's a lot of babies born in the Old Testament, right? Those Hebrews liked popping babies out, right? And so you know that there's a lot of babies, and for this to be the only time that this phrase is used, there's something significant happening here. And if we think about what we know about this story, if we think back to the beginning, Ruth was married for 10 years, right? She was married to Malon for 10 years, and apparently she hadn't had any children. And in our culture, in this society, it's not uncommon for a couple to be married 10 years and not have any children. Um, it's actually not uncommon for couples to be married um, for longer than that and not have any children. But in this culture, there was camels to water, there was goats to milk, there was chickens to feed, and there was villages to protect. So you bet you were having a lot of babies, okay? And the fact that she didn't have a child yet meant that she couldn't. And so what the author is telling us here, this is his subtle way of telling us, like, this is a miracle. God's the one who stepped in and gave conception, all right? So that's what he's trying to to draw our attention to, is, like, there's a miracle happening here, but not only that, is that God 
gave this child. Children are a gift from God. I know that those of you guys that have kids, um, you probably don't feel like that all the time when they're running around, they're making a mess of things, uh, destroying your house, keeping you up at night. But I think for a church that's in our life stage, this is a really um, significant idea to kind of focus our attention on for a few minutes, that children are a gift from God. Because I think a lot of times when there's a lot of babies being born, like in our church, we just kind of assume that that's what happens. Like, that's kind of the natural progression of a relationship. Like, you get married after you've been married for a few years. You, know, you kind of make the decision that we're going to have kids now. Pull the lever, out pops a baby. You want a second one? Pull the lever again, another baby. And I used to think like that. I think before I was uh, married, I thought that's the way it worked. And now I realize, like, there's a little bit more going on than that. And not just biologically. Like, there's, there's a little bit more going on, period. And if I'm really honest, like, my wife and I, we don't have any kids yet. We've been married for three years, a little over three years now. And um, we're, we're taking our time for sure. But there's, um, there's a lot of fear wrapped up in thinking about beginning a family. And I think a lot of you guys um, have worked through a lot of those fears. Um, some of you might be working through them right now. But it's like, what if, what if we can't have kids? Like, everyone around us is having kids. What if we can't? Or what if it just takes a really long time? Or what if there's complications? Like, what if they don't turn out exactly the way that we thought they would? Um, how are we going to be able to afford it? Like, those things are expensive. Like, when we go to one income, like, how is that going to work, like, logistically? And, you know, for my wife and I, those are very real fears. But these five words that the Lord gave conception, those are tremendously comforting. Because children are a gift from God. He loves them more than we ever could. And he gives them to us for our sanctification, for our joy, but ultimately for his glory. And so that fact, that reality is tremendously comforting for my wife and I. Hopefully it is for those of you that might be kind of going through some of those things. But not only that, I think it's really important for us as Christians and us as a church to hold that priority that children are a gift, very, very tightly. Um, Because I think we live in a culture that doesn't. Um, I think we live in a culture where kids are kind of looked at as an inconvenience or maybe the consequence of a lapse in judgment or a bad decision. But what, if this is true, if children are a gift, what that means is they might seem like an accident to us sometimes, but they're never an accident to him, okay? Every single conception is a gift from God. And that means then that every conception has dignity, every conception has value, every conception has worth. Um, And that's a really important thing for our church to hold dear, hold tightly, and to recapture, because if we don't, nobody else will. The other thing about this phrase that is especially significant is this is only the second time in this story where the author mentions God's direct activity. Right? God steps in and he does something. In chapter 1, he stepped in and he gave food. And then in the very final chapter, chapter 4, he steps in and he gives a conception. So what's going on? Well, the Hebrew authors, um, they're artists as well. Okay? Like, they never wasted words. So everything that they said was very intentional. Everything from the names they gave people to the order that they Uh, told their story, their order, they used words, all of the details. It was all very purposeful. And so um, in this scenario, it's kind of a less is more approach is what we believe the author is doing. Is like by bookending this story, 
with two instances of God intervening directly, he's telling us that even though it seems like God was absent this whole time, he was there. He was behind all of those ordinary events in Ruth's life. He was there when she lost her husband. He was there when she decided to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem. She was there when she found a new job. He was there when he met Boaz. That was all him. He was orchestrating each of those things. He was just using Ruth's faithfulness. Her faithfulness in each of those very ordinary life situations. And that's what the author's telling us, is that God uses ordinary faithfulness to do extraordinary things. Let's keep reading in, uh, in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And we're going to stop there. We'll pick up in a minute. So, what's going on in this scene is something very common and familiar to many of us, right? Um, it's a baby shower. Many of you have probably been to one recently. And um, you can, again, just see the reversal of events. Is Naomi, who had everything stripped from her. Naomi, who, who wanted to be called bitter. Naomi, who had really nothing left to live for. And now, here she's holding a chubby baby. Like, how is that for happy endings, right? Um, Unfortunately, we're not going to spend a ton of time here because I really want to get to what else the author is trying to tell us. So we're going to, we're going to go ahead and keep reading in uh, verse 17, just the second half there. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. I know what you're thinking. Like, how on earth did a wedding and a birth get beat out by a genealogy? That's what I thought, right? Like, this, how is this genealogy so important that he couldn't give us a little bit more details about the wedding, how Ruth looked, how Boaz looked, the baby, the birth, any of that? No, he goes right to a genealogy of all things. Obviously, he wasn't out to win an Oscar. So, knowing what we know about Hebrew authors... Um, I think it's worth our time to kind of figure out what he was trying to accomplish by doing that. The reason <clears throat> that this author couldn't spend the time telling us about Ruth's wedding or the birth of her baby is because he couldn't wait to tell us about her grandson, King David. And by the look on your faces, that is not that shocking to any of you, right? But if you were the original audience... That would have blown your mind, that this humble, ordinary Moabite girl would have the greatest king in Israel come from her lineage would have been mind-blowing. Um, I want to I read a quote here that I think kind of, it's by a commentator that explains this maybe a little bit better than I can. Let me put that on the screen. Perfect. All right, the author's decision to conclude the story in this way underlines the fact that history for him was important. The whole life of the nation was bound up with their king, and the importance of kingship in Israel was tied to the life of the archetypal king David. And his life, in terms of physical descent, was linked to the story of a Moabite girl gleaning in a barley field many miles from home to a caring mother-in-law and a loving kinsman, to a nighttime conversation at the threshing floor, to the willingness of a wealthy farmer to go beyond the requirements of law and his care for the needy. 
In short, pay attention to this. In short, it is the ordinariness of the events of lives of ordinary people that God is working his purpose out. In short, it is the ordinariness of the events of lives of ordinary people that God is working his purpose out. If you take nothing else from this tonight, that's what I'm trying to communicate, is that God uses ordinary lives of ordinary people to work out his purposes. So what the author is telling us is the, that the, the, the implication of a person's ordinary life, of you, you and I, our ordinary life, those, it often extends far beyond our immediate story. Okay, The implications of our ordinary lives extend far beyond our immediate stories. So what, what he's kind of doing here is like this, he's telling us is the story of Ruth, like it doesn't just end here. Like Ruth is a story within a much bigger story. And that's what this genealogy is communicating. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we talked about how the original audience would have been so shocked by this. And that's because, like, to them, there was no, it wasn't a mystery who King David was. Like, if you think about any celebrity now, um, like, King David would top their celebrity status by a hundredfold. Like, in this, in this context, like, he, he would have been on the cover of every magazine, like, Time, People, Forbes, like, the who's who. Like, everybody knew who King David, not just Israelites, but everyone in the known, like, universe at that time knew who King David was. Like, this was the man after God's own heart. You don't have to be a Christian to know who King David was. And the, the fact that this great king who God used in so many extraordinary ways, descended from this ordinary Moabite girl, was mind-blowing. <clears throat> so, the story of Ruth um, is over, right, as far as the, the text goes. And it's been, hopefully, a really challenging story. Hopefully, it's been inspiring. Hopefully, it's um, changed things about you. And, um, that's the thing. With stories that God gives us, like Ruth, like they're not just meant to entertain us. They're meant to change us. And that's, that's what good stories do, right? They change parts about us. Whether it's a movie or a novel, um, you read those things, or I guess you, I should say, the ones that are truly memorable, the ones that truly are impactful are those ones that change you. And so there's, there's three ways that I think this story changes us. The first way that I think the story of Ruth should change us, I think it changes the way that we think. Changes the way that we think. Um, I think it changes the way that we think about ourselves, and I think it changes the way that we think about others. So let's talk first about the way that it changes, or changes the way we think about ourselves. For many of us, we feel this pressure to be extraordinary. We feel this pressure um, to do something really epic with our lives, to do something really radical, to not settle for anything, to avoid complacency and apathy. We're always kind of seeking the next thrill, the next adventure, kind of the next big thing. And um, I think for those of us that are like that, like this story really offers us the gift of saying, like, don't. Like, accept the ordinariness that God has given you. Accept the fact that you're ordinary. Sorry, you are. We all are. I am too. Um, and then God can begin to do something extraordinary with you. And I think there's other, others of us in this room that tend to be maybe not quite that way. We tend to kind of be okay with ordinary because that's kind of all we've ever thought of ourselves as. And maybe we 
Um, we're never the highest achievers. We were never that successful. And um, we just didn't think we had a whole lot to contribute to the world. And for this story, like this story of Ruth is really good news for those of us that are more like that because it tells us, like, those are the kind of people God uses. Like, God wants to do something with your lack of talent, with your lack of success, with your lack of achievements. Like, that's the story of the Bible, right? He takes people just like that, and he uses them. That's the gospel. And, you know, I felt a little bit of this pressure, even as I was writing this sermon and rehearsing this sermon. It's like, I really want this to be extraordinary. Like, but the reality of it is, it's not, right? It's ordinary, and that's okay. And that was, like, tremendously freeing for me the moment I realized that. It's like, I don't have to go up there and be Brian Barley. Like, I don't have to go up there and be Tim Keller or J.D. Greer or Andy Metzger. Like, I can be me, and it's okay. It's going to be fine. Next week, I'll be doing the operations again, and everything will go great. <clears throat> but I think we all have an area where we can relate to that, right? We all, whether it's work, and I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue excellence. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to do the best that we can. I'm just saying that we need to be okay um, and embrace the fact that most of our lives, they're pretty ordinary. Um, secondly, is uh, I think that this story changes the way that we think about others. And I think if we look at Ruth's story, what we realize is a lot of those ordinary events that she had um, were opportunities for her to love and serve people, specifically Naomi. And so a lot of, um, I guess, her faithfulness in those ordinary events, um, the decision that she made was to love and serve Naomi, to commit to Naomi, um, ultimately because she wanted to love and serve her God. And so it's the same for us. I think um, when we really start looking at what ordinary faithfulness looks in our lives, uh, it's directed at people most of the time. Like the people in our lives, the people that God's put in our lives are ordinary opportunities uh, for us to make deposits, right, that have eternal value, that have lasting significance. And I think it's easy to overlook people or look at people as like um, an inconvenience or as... uh, I guess, less important than some of the things that are in your schedule. Uh, When in reality, like, those are the opportunities we're talking about. Like, that's how we live out this story, is the people that God puts in our lives. And let me just tell you what this has looked like in my life. Um, I told my city group this a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Ruth series. We were just talking about, like, how has this practically changed you? And uh, and what I told them was that um, if you were to look at my schedule today compared to, let's just take six months ago, it would look a lot different because today there would be a lot more people in it than there were six months ago. Because six months ago, um, the tasks that I had to do, the systems that I had to build, um, those were all a lot more important to me. But what I've realized is that's not the win. Productivity is not the win. Tasks that you can check off your list is not the win. Like People are the win. And so if you look at my schedule today, um, my next week is filled with a lot more opportunities to be around people. Um, And not only is that a whole lot more life-giving and fulfilling, um, but that's the opportunities that I have to be faithful with the ordinary life and the ordinary job that God's given me. So the question I have for you is just ask yourself then, like, what does that look like for you to prioritize people that way, to think about yourself differently, to think about other people differently? How will that change your schedule? How will that change your priorities? How will that change your weekends? How will that change where you're at Sunday nights? I was actually kind of joking about that. You guys are also serious. <laughs> but you should be here Sunday nights. 
Secondly, I think Ruth changes the way that we act. And I think the best way for me to illustrate this point is to just point you to the people all around you that are doing this. Okay, like, I have the privilege of overseeing um, all of our volunteers on Sundays. And those are the people that are being really, really faithful and really, really committed in very ordinary callings. Every Sunday, there's people that show up to straighten your chairs, to make sure there's a Bible on your table, to make you really good coffee, to take care of your screaming kids, teach them, right? Um, to greet you as you come in. Um, all of these different things, like there's a team, there's a small army of people that come to do those things. And I know that for the people doing that, like that doesn't feel like anything too spectacular. Um, I get that. But what you do allows us to do what we do on a Sunday night. Like those are all just small moving pieces of something much bigger that God is doing through these gatherings. We're going to celebrate that um, after, this, or after this message when we do a baptism. Like that's just a, that's a glimpse into all of those different moving parts that you guys have a hand in every Sunday night. So I think that's one way where I see this happening. Another way where I see this is just in some of the jobs that a lot of you guys work. Like, there's a few of you that have pretty cool jobs that are pretty extraordinary. There's a, there's a few, like, doctors in here. Like, that's awesome. There's probably some lawyers. But most of us have pretty ordinary jobs, right? Um, and I think that the culture that we live in, like, probably a lot of our friends, maybe outside the church, um, they give us this impression that our job should be, like, the ultimate fulfillment, that our job should be so rewarding. It should give us so much worth. Um, it should give us more than a job was ever created to give, right? Like, your job wasn't supposed to be the thing that satisfies your soul longings. Like, your job wasn't supposed to be the most rewarding thing in your week. Some of you have jobs like that, and that's great. Like, I love my job. My job is extremely rewarding and extremely fulfilling, but not every week is like that, right? And I think for most of you, if you're honest, you probably feel the same way. And so, I think then, if we look at our jobs appropriately, like, we realize, like, a job's not supposed to give me all this. And, like, if, just because I don't have a job that's, like, the end-all, be-all, and is so fulfilling and so rewarding, doesn't mean I just quit it and go look for something that is going to do that. Because the reality of it is probably nothing will if that's your mentality. It means that I look at my ordinary job, and I look at what it looks like to be faithful. I commit to being faithful. I commit to serving my coworkers there. I commit to doing it the best that I can. It's accepting those ordinary callings that God calls each of us to. I think that's just really important and helpful as we even go into our jobs tomorrow. It's like, what does it look like for me to do this job the way Ruth would have done it, right? Lastly, I think Ruth changes the way that we believe. I think that when we really believe that the best way to change the world is to live extraordinarily in what looks like the ordinary, God can start to do big things with us. I think when we really believe that the decisions that we make today, the relationships that we have today, all of these ordinary things that we have today are of eternal significance, I think that really changes the way that we look at our lives. And, you know, I think if, if we really think about this, we'll realize that, that what I just said is a whole lot harder um, than a lot of these Maybe, maybe what you had planned for the grand story of your life, right? Like living faithfully um, in the ordinary life you have to the ordinary people that God's put around you, um, that's a whole lot harder than traveling around the ro- world, like doing some life-changing job. Like 
Um, I hesitate to give examples here just because um, like, there are really extraordinary things that I believe God calls people to. And sometimes I think we elevate those things um, and think if we're not doing them, then we're not changing the world. But you can all think of what those things might be, okay? And so what I want to help you understand then is that like, some of those things might actually be easier than just living faithfully where you're at. And so I think sometimes we take those things and we kind of pursue them um, to the neglect of the ordinary calling that each of us have. Does that make sense? Like, we, we think that if we can go, like, build wells somewhere or build orphanages somewhere, that, like, then we're going to do something for God. And like I said, like, those are genuine callings from God that I think people need to do, um, but not at the expense of the ordinary things that God calls each of us to. Okay? I hope I'm really clear with that. So, we saw that... This ordinary Moabite girl um, doing ordinary, faithful things in her ordinary life. Um, from all that came King David. But that wasn't the only king that descended from Ruth. See, in Matthew 1, uh, Matthew's one of the gospel writers. So in the beginning of his gospel, he decided to start it with a genealogy. And in that genealogy is all the names that we just saw in chapter 4 plus some. It's much longer genealogy. So we saw um, Ruth and, we see Ruth and Boaz in that genealogy. Um, then we see King David and Bathsheba. And then at the very end, we see Joseph and Mary. And that's the same Joseph and Mary that we're going to be singing a lot about in the next few weeks in all these Christmas carols, right? Those are, that's the same Joseph and Mary that were the parents of King Jesus. Let me uh, go ahead and read one more commentator on this. The book of Ruth wants to teach us that God's purpose for the life of his people is to connect us to something far greater than ourselves. God wants us to know that when we follow him, our lives always mean more than we think they do. For the Christian, there is always a connection between the ordinary events of life and the stupendous work of God in history. Everything we do in obedience to God, no matter how small, is significant. It's part of a cosmic mosaic which God is painting to display the greatness of his power and wisdom to the world and to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The deep satisfaction of the Christian life is that it is not given over to trifles. Serving a widowed mother-in-law, gleaning in a field, falling in love, having a baby. For the Christian, these things are all connected to eternity. They are part of something so much bigger than they seem. See, without this ordinary Moabite girl, Christianity wouldn't have a founder, all right? Like, we wouldn't have a reason to be in this room today. Like, just think about that. Like, sometimes I think we read this story, and it just seems, I don't know, like something in a museum that, like, we don't really touch, that doesn't really have a whole lot of, like, relevance or impact on us. But, like, without this story, this is a real story of a real historic person, you and I would not be accepted into the greater story, right, of what God is doing in the world. And that's what the author is saying with that genealogy, is just like the story of Ruth is a much bigger story, the story that God started with Abraham, right, and then continued with Ruth, and then continued with Mary, all very ordinary people. And here's King Jesus. And that's what we're going to be celebrating in the next several weeks as we move into our Advent series, the entrance of King Jesus, baby Jesus, into history. And... Hopefully this year, the story of Ruth will shed a little bit more light 
on what we're celebrating um, for all of us. Because I don't think we often think about Ruth when we're celebrating the Christmas season or celebrating all the ordinary people that it took to bring Jesus into the world, or I should say that God used to bring Jesus into the world. So in many ways, even though this story ends in the last chapter of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, this story continues with you and I. And that's what that, that last quote was getting at, is like each of our stories are woven into the bigger story of what God is doing in history. It's connected to the same story that he started with Abraham. It's connected to the same story that Ruth and Boaz were a part of. It's connected to the same story that Mary and Joseph were a part of because of Jesus, right? Because of the gospel, we've all been invited into this story. And that's why when we started this Ruth series, um, we started showing you just videos of some of our own people and their stories. And those weren't just to kind of capture um, inspiring stories, but it was to kind of connect all of those stories so what's going on in this story and also the greater story. And so hopefully you've seen that tonight. You've seen how God uses ordinary people with ordinary faithfulness to do extraordinary things, or in this case, to build an extraordinary legacy. So, as we conclude tonight, there's some of you that didn't really understand um, what that meant as far as the bigger story. So I just want to be really clear, um, because I don't want you to go away tonight not having a really clear understanding of, of what I'm talking about. And so when I'm talking about the bigger story, I'm talking about the gospel story. Um, that's the story that we're going to be celebrating throughout our Advent series, so I hope you come back and hear it. Um, it's the story of Jesus entering into human history, living a life that we couldn't live, um, dying the death on the cross in our place, and then rising again. And that's the reason why you and I are invited into this story of what God is doing in history. That's the reason that we can come before a holy God. That's the reason, ultimately, why our lives matter, why our ordinary lives, our ordinary callings have any significance. And so if that's new to you and you want to talk more about that, um, please come talk to me afterwards, talk to one of our other pastors afterwards, or you can just take one of those blue cards um, that's on your table and fill those out, and we'd love to follow up with you. But for those of you that have already been entered in this story because you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you've committed to following him, just like Solaris is going to do in a little bit tonight by being baptized, this is something to celebrate. It's something to not overlook the significance of. Um, and it's also something we can carry into our work week tomorrow and hopefully work weeks after that, as we realize that these ordinary jobs that we're working, these ordinary people in our lives, like those are the opportunities that we have to make eternal impact. Like That's what God's going to use to build a legacy with our lives. And so while the people around us, while the culture, while society may tell us that it's all about um, portfolios, investments, talent, skill, looks, whatever, um, we know that those, those things may, may help. Ultimately, God's going to use the faithfulness that we show where we're at to build a legacy. Let me pray. Father God, <clears throat> I thank you for the story of Ruth. I thank you for just all the different dimensions of it. I thank you for 
the example we have of her love for Naomi and ultimately her love for you. Um, I thank you that she was just an ordinary woman um, that you used to do some pretty incredible things. Lord, that gives us hope. That gives us um, so much encouragement. And that just frees us from the pressure to feel like our lives have to be so extraordinary, Lord. That frees us from feeling like we always have to be doing something extraordinary for you um, and allows us to be able to just enjoy you. And so I pray that we would take advantage of that gift. Um, Lord, I pray that as we move into the Christmas season that we would just celebrate you using ordinary people to bring about the redemption of this family, the redemption of a nation, and ultimately, or the redemption of mankind. And so we praise you for that tonight. Um, Lord, as we continue to celebrate through song and through a baptism, we thank you for how good you are. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.